0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zuisei Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazwisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. There is that in me. I do not know what it is, but I know it is in me. Wrenched and sweaty, calm and cool, then my body becomes. I sleep. I sleep long. I do not know it. It is without name. It is a word unsaid. It is not in any dictionary, utterance, symbol. Something, it swings on more than the earth I swing on. To it, the creation is the friend whose embracing awakes me. Perhaps I might tell more. Outlines. I plead for my brothers and sisters. Do you see, oh, my brothers and sisters? It is not chaos or death. It is form, union, plan. It is eternal life. It is happiness. I began writing this talk before dawn on a day that was so overcast. The sky was really heavy with its own weight. And it felt as if it was really pressing down on the water because I was sitting by a lake. And everything was gray, slate gray. And the, the mountains that normally outline Chasey Lake were completely hidden in fog. Uh, it was as if they were non-existent, as if they had never stood there before, <coughs> green and noble. And it is, for me, the best time of the day, those couple of hours before the sun rises and and with it, the activity of the mind. I would choose to do most of the things of my day during those two hours, if I could. And I sat there, and I was looking at the water rippling in the wind, and there was a Uh, an elm right at the edge of the bank. And because the bank has gotten eroded over the years, we've been going to this particular lake every year for about 12 years now. Um, Its uh, roots are suspended in air, half suspended in air. And I I was just watching it swaying, and it's still a relatively young tree, but already I could see its days are numbered. And I wondered if a tree knows this, whether it can feel decay, change in its roots, in its branches and leaves. It reminded me of a, a friend of mine who, who told me that a few years ago, her, at the time, her four-year-old said to her, Mommy, are we constantly dying from the moment we are born? And I thought, if you can only hold on to that knowledge because you will need it, But it wasn't, uh, the morning was not gloomy, despite the sky and the fog. It was was actually very beautiful. And as I sat there, I was thinking what I should write about. And I had this image, and I couldn't remember who the poet is, it might be Sharon Olds, um, who said that when she's out walking in the woods, sometimes a poem would come to her, and she would have to run home at top speed and grab something to write and start writing the poem, she said grab it, she would grab it from the tail and start to reel it back in backwards from end to beginning. And it's certainly not how I write a talk, but it's you know I more find a thread and then follow it and see where it will lead me. And so I was I was thinking, I was just sitting there reflecting, and then almost directly across from me, across the water on the other bank was, appeared a very bright light. And it was too bright to be a car, uh, too big to be a, a house light. It was too concentrated to be a floodlight, and I certainly couldn't ignore it. It was too insistent. And I suppose it could have belonged to a boat, but if it did, I never saw it. And as I watched, it, it split in two and then it kind of went on top, so it was one perfectly round orb in front, um, on top of the other. And it got longer and brighter until I almost couldn't look at it directly. And so I looked away for a split second, and when I looked back, it was gone. Like it had never been there. I have no idea what it was, but I know it was there, and then it wasn't. Very much like a, like the, a thought you catch out of the corner of your mind, or that, that first thought upon waking. It's there, and it's clear as day, and then the ne- next instant is gone. And all you're left with is a, a faint trace, like an afterimage, a, a suggestion of something you should look at more closely, but it's still indistinct. And this poem that I, that I read, this excerpt, is from Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. And it's one of the last uh, sections in the poem, right before those uh, famous lines which Dada used to love to quote. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And it comes also just before Whitman is saying that he has filled and emptied, past and present, and now is moving in to fill a new fold in the future. And just before he's addressing the, the listener up there, God, I take it, as if asking if he has something to confide in him. But he really asks kind of uh, jokingly or, or hypothetically, you know, maybe like a, like a mother asks her child who's been caught with her hand in the glass jar and chocolate all over her face, do you have something you want to tell me? <laughs> Somebody sent me a a, a photograph of a plaque that said, I will live in the present moment unless it's unpleasant, in which case I will eat a a cookie. And it was was signed, (laughs) it was signed, the cookie monster. And I thought, well, it may have to be a very big cookie if it's just a single one, depending on the unpleasantness of the moment. I I thought really I should say I will eat a bag of cookies. If the moment's unpleasant, I will create a fantasy. I will bury myself in work. I will surf the internet. I will think about tomorrow. I will think about yesterday. I will fill in the space in my mind. There's so many ways in which we can not be in the present. And at the same time, we know that it's actually impossible. And yet. And as I was following this thread, I I remembered uh, a story that um, my mother told me many years ago. She said that we um, went to a friend's house for the weekend. And I didn't really know the family. My parents did. And... um, I woke up early on, on Saturday morning and I was about three and I waddled over to out into the hallway and I saw this big white wall all along the um, stairway. And I had a bag of crayons with me. And so I got to, to work, I got down to work. And when my parents woke up, I, I had covered the entire wall with some kind of drawing. I don't, know, I don't know what it was. They spent the rest of the weekend with rags and buckets uh, washing out my masterpiece. And um, and it just started me thinking, like, I really wonder why I did that. I'd never been in that house. I don't know that I ever did anything like that. I, I, I did do that, that in my own home, um, but I don't know that I ever did that You know, in somebody else's space. And... I just wondered why, like, what moved me to do that, and uh, you know, of course, it's hard to know at three. But I did wonder, like, was I anxious about something? Was this just an irrepressible urge, you know, to express? Was there something that I that I needed at, at the time for whatever reason to to make real, to make observable, concrete, so I could make sense of it? And isn't this why? so often we create, not the only reason, but it's certainly part of the reason, certainly one of the reasons I write, to, to make sense of what I sometimes don't yet see, but can sense. And William James, in the Varieties of Religious Experience, uh, speaks about the reality of the unseen. You know, Dada Roshi used to say of liturgy making visible, that it's, it makes visible the invisible. And so there's the world of the seen, of the senses, of form, and there's the realm of the unseen. And in the border between the two, mysticism converges. Not that I'm claiming that I was having a mystical experience, you know, at three, with those, with those crayons, I mean, maybe I was just feeling bold. Or maybe I was feeling uncomfortable in some way, and this seemed like a perfectly good, reasonable, um, effective outlet. And I've told a story relatively recently um, of, a, of a young girl who's sitting in kindergarten and, and, and really going to town, you know, drawing, and the teacher is watching her for quite a while. And you know how usually you give kids a drawing and there's always the ones who can sit there for two hours without moving. And the ones that after five minutes, they're done. They're moving on to the next thing. And she's really, she's really in it. She's really involved. And so at a certain point, the teacher goes over and, and asks her, I says, you know, Lucy, what are you, what are you doing? What are you drawing? And Lucy says, well, I'm drawing God. And the teacher, she of little faith, says, but no one has ever seen God. And Lucy, without even uh, looking up, says, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this is a, an aside, but it reminded me of an, an article I just read. There's a, um, a, um, an engineer who worked at Google and Uber who's creating an AI um, god a deity, he's creating an an artificial intelligence god who he claims, uh, or which he claims will be um, omniscient. This god will know everything, so we'll be able to answer all of our questions, but probably will not want to be worshiped because it would want to be self-sufficient. And I find that uh, fascinating and horrifying, frankly. I mean, do we know, do we have any idea what it is that we're creating? Because we can. But does it? Does that mean that we should? But there is a question that I do think that um, artists and scientists and mystics, inventors have been asking for thousands and thousands of years, and that is what if? What if what I see is not all there is? What if I'm not seeing fully? What if there is another realm, another world, somewhere just out of sight? And what if, in trying to express, I touch it? I do make visible the invisible. I make seen the unseen. And I've, I've spoken of her before, Flora Courtois, who to me is really a modern-day mystic, who got absorbed at a very early age, she was about 17. She became completely absorbed with the question, what is reality? And she had no uh, religious background of her own. And so she turned to what she, what she knew. She, she studied philosophy and psychology and spoke to uh, different religious leaders, uh, priests. And and they all thought she was crazy, actually. They they dismissed her. And she was convinced that there had to be a reality that permeates everything. And she says, and it has to include the senses. And she said, but the senses are limited. So how do I perceive it directly? And it's interesting, because in the Yogacara school, that describes the eight levels of consciousness, the the senses, the six sense consciousnesses, actually can perceive directly before manas, before the seventh consciousness comes in to filter and interpret and make sense of the information. So in that first contact, very, very immediate contact, we are perceiving directly, but immediately, we, we filter through this very strong sense of me, which immediately colors that experience. But so not knowing any of this, she senses this, and she senses that whatever this reality is must be singular, she calls it. Right, so that under, underneath this variety of experience, there must be some kind of unifying principle which holds it all together. Apeiron, the Greek philosopher Anaximander called it, the indis- indistinct, I mean, we would call it mind. We would call it the ground of being. And not so much that it holds anything together, actually, but that it is everything, that it is all of it. And just like this, the, the mystics of old Courtois began to have these visions very spontaneously, and she describes how they were, they were not dreams. She wasn't asleep. She was wide awake. And in one of them, she saw herself as part of a family of cave dwellers. And she describes it very much like, like Plato's cave, where, where everybody is in the cave living their lives, um, knowing that there's more outside the cave, but being too afraid to go out and explore. And so sensing that just outside their their comfort, there is a vast world and not being able to step forth. And she said she did, because she had to, because she knew she would die in that cave. And in another vision, she sees herself in, a, in an office building, kind of like a, a high rise with cubicles, and she's in one of the cubicles, and every single cubicle is filled all throughout the building with people sitting at these low metal desks, and everything is low ang- um, right angles, flat surfaces. And everybody's sitting at these desks facing the wall, moving big building blocks around, colored blocks around. And everybody's doing exactly the same things, sitting in exactly the same way. And at a certain point, for some reason, she decides to turn around fully. And she realizes that behind her is this huge window, opening to this wide open field. And she realizes that the window has always been there, but she never, somehow never noticed it before. And she decides to go out. Into this, she calls it, describes it as an iridescent landscape, and she, the the feeling that she describes is what we would call uh, rapture or joy or bliss, and a freedom that she's, she's never tasted before. But then, when she comes back into the building to tell everybody else, she doesn't have the words to communicate it. She cannot express it. Sometimes people working on Moo will say, well, you know, I know that I've really seen it, but I can't express it. But the fact is is that if you've really seen it, if you've really been it, you can't help but express it. And yet there is that time, there is that period of, of, of sensing, of moving towards and not yet being able to express And so Whitman says, I don't know what it is, but I know it is in me. At the end of of the poem of Song of Myself, he says, I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I love that. I too am untranslatable. And, And here he says, it is a word unsaid. It's not in any dictionary, and you cannot name it. And then he names it. Happiness. Do I contradict myself? And still, this isn't um, ordinary happiness. It isn't just good fortune or chance. He says it includes form, union, plan, eternal life. It is the natural order of things, the Tao. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. So it is our naming that gives birth to particular things. I've always been um, very interested in this, in this process of naming and unnaming. Uh, Ted Chiang, who's a science fiction writer, has a story about really about this, about nomenclature, and about these clay figures, which, in order to um, come to life, must be given names. And in the in the chain of dependent origination, um, name and form comes just after consciousness and just before the six senses. So there's consciousness, name and form, six senses, contact, um, perception, clinging, attachment, you know, etc. But this, uh, the the Dao De Jing is saying that it's the unnameable that is eternally real. So if things remain unnamed, they remain universal, unified. Isn't this why we sit, hour after hour, turning the senses inward, letting our minds settle, holding them stable, focusing on one thing, staying and letting go, not adding, not creating. In a sense, to unname what we see, to make real the unseen. And it's both a letting go of anything that is extraneous, but also very much of of staying, of of living in that present moment, unpleasant or not. And Pema Chodron tells a a story of spending all night sitting with a friend, I think during a retreat, and just sitting, holding her friend's hand and just saying to her, stay, stay. As the friend is, is reliving, is moving through uh, some excruciating memories. And Pema children is, is, is um, in a sense, standing guard to her mind and her being and helping her to remain unmoving. Isn't this why, in the midst of so much that needs our attention, our care, our involvement, our work, we stop and not do for a while. Why we so fiercely protect stillness and silence. And you know, paradoxically, we 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 do this in order to remember what we so easily forget, that the singular behind the particular. And yet So much of this remembering actually happens by forgetting, by forgetting names and colors and sounds and thoughts and opinions and beliefs. So in the language of of the Tao Te Ching, or maybe the the Faith Mind poem, it's remembrance by forgetting, attaining through non-doing. We say at the beginning of every retreat, please turn off your cell phone so that you can give yourself to the cloister of the monastery. And really, what we should say is so you can give yourself to the cloister of your mind, of your being. And the Latin for uh, cloister, claustrum, means enclosure, a place that is shut in. And in a convent or a monastery, it referred to a, a covered walkway that would be usually at the the, the top around the, um, the, the cloister, where the monks could take fresh air without being seen or, or disturbed. But interestingly, there's also an, an area in the brain called the, the claustrum, which acts as a conductor of an orchestra because it regulates consciousness and cognition. And so it takes all the information from the senses and puts it together to form a full picture. So as I was sitting there watching the lake and I could see the water rippling and I could hear it gurgling as it hit the bank and I could smell the dampness in the air, it's really the claustrum that was putting all those cues together and was saying they came from the same source, lake water. But if I had chosen that moment to use my mind Differently, If instead of writing and reflecting about what I saw, I had just sat very still, maybe just gazed, gazed at the water. If I had let my mind rest in that awareness without moving to name, my experience may have been quite different. <coughs> Evelyn Underhill says... All that is asked is that we shall look for a little time in a special and undivided manner at some simple, concrete, and external thing. This object of our contemplation may be almost anything we please, a picture, a statue, a tree, a distant hillside, a growing plant, running water, little living things. Look then at this thing which you have chosen. Willfully yet tranquilly refuse the messages which countless other aspects of the world are sending, and so concentrate your whole attention on this one act of loving sight, that all other objects are excluded from the conscious field. Do not think, but as it were, pour out your personality toward it. Let your soul be in your eyes. Almost at once, this new method of perception will reveal unsuspected qualities in the external world. First, you will perceive about you a strange and deepening quietness, a slowing down of our feverish mental time. Next, you will become aware of a heightened significance, an intensified existence in the thing at which you look. As you, with all your consciousness, lean out towards it, an answering current will meet yours. It seems as though the barrier between its life and your own, between subject and object, had melted away. You are merged with it in an act of true communion, and you know the secret of its being deeply and unforgettably, yet in a way which you can never hope to express. Makes me think of of Master Dogen speaking of um, subtle communication, sometimes translated as mystical communication, but subtle communication between that subject and object. And that it seems as if the barrier between the two has melted away, and is it that there's something other communicating with you? Is it you yourself communicating? i 'm not sure if anybody else has said it better than Underhill, what happens you know in, in that act of of merging and what is required to get there and she says, you know, to use an external object, a candle. There are, in, in, the, in, the Buddhist, in our tradition, um, symbols, colors, images. But for us, you know, largely we use the breath, or we use a con, we use awareness. But the process is the same. We pour our whole being into it with this one act of loving sight, we lovingly concentrate. When when you're struggling, really um, remember that, feel that. I've always thought that is so true that zazen is the most loving practice. There is. The most caring practice. As the day got lighter and the wind picked up and the fog began to lift slightly, I saw the, the, just the very hem of the mountains just across the, the lake. And then houses starting to appear and a boat and loons. And, and they, they very much seem to be communicating. You know, they, they do this, the, when they're preening, they do this flapping of their wings. So it looks almost like they're clapping it looks, it looks very, both majestic, but very celebratory. And there were several of them together. And then they would, um, one at a time, you know, put their heads down and see if there was anything underneath that they could dive. And they would look up and kind of, it seemed, look at, looked at each other and kind of discuss, is this a good time to dive? <laughs> and then at a certain point, it must have been, because they all, they all disappeared. And I, and I felt this, and I felt this something that Whitman speaks of which, granted, is easier to, f- to feel when you're quiet and when the scenery in front of you is beautiful, breathtaking, really. It's something that the earth and all the planets swing on. But as Sean said the other day, it's there amidst the sirens and the construction and the traffic, <clears throat> the outlines of the thing that you cannot see with your eyes. Actually, you can. You can, but you do have to be very still and very, very silent. And I think that's part of why it's more difficult to do it in the midst of a city bustle, in the midst of our noise. And as we were, we were coming back from, from this trip, we were... We were driving on a a narrow country road, and we passed a a church, an Episcopal church, with this very bright red door uh, that really caught you. And it had the sign, like all the churches do, sign outside. And the sign said, the sermon this morning, Jesus walks on water. The sermon tonight, searching for Jesus. (laughs) And I could almost see the minister, like, cracking herself up. You know, she was <laughs> writing that one. <laughs> and it reminded me of Dido. Um, he gave a talk called Jesus Walks on Water. And it became immediately the hands-down best-selling talk we had on Audible. And the whole premise of the talk was that miracles, like walking on water, are just... Uh, I think Rashi called them yesterday, minor miracles. That they're a form of, of distraction. That the true miracle is to have a cup of tea, is to boil an egg, is to walk across a room, to enter a room for the first time, every time. To do something with undivided attention. And there's a There's a a proverb, I've used it for my uh, running retreat. The miracle is not to fly in the air, nor to walk on the water, but to walk on the earth. Thich speaks of it too. And the thing is, it has taken us millions, millions of years to learn how to walk effortlessly. That's something that artificial intelligence can't yet do. And there's a, a name for that. Uh, they call it Moravec's Paradox. He said, basically, he was uh, an AI researcher who said, it's because uh, high-level tasks like reasoning and intellect are only a few thousand years old, while low-level tasks like walking or breathing, some, some motor functions, are millions of years old, and that's why we can't yet replicate them. So maybe that's the hope that it will still take us a while to actually create a machine that, truly looks human. Maybe it will give us, buy us a little time to get ourselves together. This is Whitman, Whitman again. There is a part from mere intellect in the makeup of every human identity, a wondrous something that realizes without argument, frequently with what is called education, an intuition of the absolute balance in time and space of this multifarious, mad chaos, this revel of fools an incredible make-believe and general unsettledness we call the world, a soul sight of that divine clue an unseen thread which holds the whole conjuries of things, all history and time and all events, however trivial, however momentous, like a leashed dog in the hand of the hunter." And again, I'm assuming that God is that hunter holding in hand all of those strings, all those threads, the whole conjuries of things, keeping them in check. And I've always, I've seen this as the, um, not always, um, I have come to see it as the, the pattern, the fabric of the world itself. the the sense that amidst all of this chaos, this general unsettledness, there is a clear image, a definite pattern that emerges slowly, if only we do not rush in to fill it ourselves, which is very hard to do, to be so innocent of knowledge, of certainty. And maybe this is perhaps our greatest obstacle in this time. Maybe it's always been true. Our certainty about what is right and wrong, what is important and unimportant, who we are, what we are here to do, and in what manner. It's our certainty that what we can see and touch and make and buy is more real and more relevant than what is not visible. And of course, it's not that it's unimportant. But how is it important? How is it relevant? How do the unseen and the seen interact? This is our path. This is our question. And it's not that this soul site, this root center of the mind that's going to fix all of our social and political religious problems, our personal problems, our family problems because we have to enact the pattern. We need to correct it when we have muddled it up. But most importantly, it needs to be seen. It needs to be recognized because without this soul sight, we will just flail about in our mad chaos, in our make-believe. And so that's what we call what we do, waking up. Waking up from the dream of our lives, from our our constant selfing. I don't know a more difficult task. I haven't come up uh, across a more difficult task, nor a more fulfilling one. And so on the last, the last morning, before we left, I woke up, and this time the dawn was, was clear. And the sky was, was still dark, and it was just beginning to, to become light in the east. And there was just a little bit of fog on the lake, and I, and I once again sat looking, looking at that quickening lake and the elm that this time was standing perfectly still and the dog that seemed to have been born from the water. And I, and I thought, you know, if I could really do what I've said so often over the last 10 years or so, if I could really see things as they are, I think every day I would be weeping out of certainly sheer joy and wonder but also grief for what I have missed. And perhaps for the terrible, astounding, beautiful reality of all of it. So maybe our certainty is is, is not actual knowledge, maybe it's just a buffer against that much nakedness, against too much reality too soon. So maybe it's a good thing that practice takes so long, that in general we see so gradually. We are certain until we're not, and then we're ready to take a step. And then we do. And then we're certain until we're not, and then we're ready to take another step. And that's how, you know, little by little, very, very little by little, we walk ourselves into waking For more talks, to get information about Zuisei Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessaswiseigoddard.org.